0: Today on Legalese, we're going to be talking about the outright theft of the home of a 94-year-old woman perpetrated by the city of Minneapolis. We will be looking at the government's arguments for why they consider this trampling of her private property rights to be moral, lawful, and constitutional. We will also be looking at how she is challenging this thievery in the courts and the likely broader implications that her case will have now that the Supreme Court has recently decided to grant cert and take up her case on the merits. Ultimately, this will be to decide if theft is theft when the thief is the government. And to what degree does the government feel justified explicitly violating some of the most vulnerable in their own local community? Freeze, motherfucker! Oh god, please don't shoot me, I'm I'm naked. Drop your coat and grab your toes. What? I'm gonna show you where the wild goose goes. Oh, this isn't happening. I, I, I'm i a... So last Friday, the Supreme Court decided to grant cert on a case that will challenge the constitutionality of a Minnesota state law that empowers local government to seize the entire value of a property in order to pay off a much smaller delinquent property tax debt. Now the property owner in this case is a 94-year-old widow named Geraldine Tyler, And she argues that this kind of uncompensated seizure of home equity violates the Takings Clause of the Fifth Amendment, which requires the government to pay just compensation any time it takes private property. She also says that this is a violation of the Excessive Fines Clause of the Eighth Amendment. But before we get into that, real quick, let me welcome you to the show if you're new to my channel, let me bid you a special-er welcome. Uh, this is a podcast where we're going to be discussing all things constitutional law, as well as uh, other topics in current events related to law, politics, and culture. Uh, now, the show is available in a number of different formats. Personally, uh, I think the best one is the video version, which is available on YouTube, Rumble, and Odyssey. We also do an audio-only version over on Anchor and Spotify, if you would prefer Also, if you go over to uh, Substack, you can find not only the show's uh, archive, but you can find a bunch of really good articles and essays uh, that I have written and continue to write, mostly talking about different areas of constitutional law. And also, Substack has been increasingly becoming something of a de facto show notes page for me. Uh, It is where I am now posting uh, relevant documents that I discuss in the videos, uh, case briefs that I draft for cases that we discuss and any other related bits of information. And also, my new book, Constitutional Sleight of Hand, uh, is just recently released. Uh, now, it's about the history of the implied powers doctrine and constitutional law, and how we can return that clause to its original meaning and scope. Uh, if you want to check that out, it's available for purchase on Amazon, and the links to all of those awesome sites are available down in this video's description. So the story we will be uh, discussing today uh, hits kind of close to home for me, and I mean that quite literally. Uh, This case that is coming before the Supreme Court is uh, due to the actions of my own hometown of Minneapolis. And while it's really no surprise that the government believes it's entitled to partake in armed robbery against the people they are ostensibly there to serve, And while many people watching this are likely already saying to themselves, government theft, that's nothing new, and it's a sentiment I share. However, it's really not the theft itself in this case that I find so shocking. It is the means by which the theft is transpiring, and the government's justification of their actions, that takes the idea of government theft to a whole new level. However, in its defense... Minnesota is really actually only one of uh, 12 states that are doing this and reinterpreting the Fifth Amendment's taking clause into what can only be described as the bend over and take it clause. But before we begin to get into the particular legal construction of this case, I think it would behoove us to take a minute to ask some very basic questions about The Fifth Amendment's Taking Clause. So that clause reads that no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. Now, from there, I think we can conversely uh, extrapolate that uh, the government may permissibly take private property for public use with just compensation. Now, in 1833, in the case of Barron v. Baltimore, the Supreme Court held that the Takings Clause only restricted the federal government's powers. The first eight amendments, now known as the Bill of Rights, did not limit the state's police power. However, this dynamic would change following the ratification of the 14th Amendment. And in an 1897 case, Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy Railroad Company, v. city of Chicago, uh, the court held that the state does violate the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment when it takes property for public use without providing just compensation. Now, while that case did not actually cite the takings clause of the Fifth Amendment, uh, it really sort of by proxy under modern doctrine, because of this case, they have held the takings clause of the Fifth Amendment uh, to be incorporated onto the states. Now, this right. Like most other rights in the first eight amendments, uh, now limit state police powers. But this leaves a number of questions still up in the air, such as when a state takes private property, uh, it must provide just compensation. But when the state uses its police power to regulate property, they don't need to provide just compensation. So, how do we distinguish between a taking? which requires just compensation, and an exercise of the police power, which does not require just compensation. Now, in some cases, it is fairly obvious when the government takes property. Uh, For example, one of the worst, worst cases in all of Supreme Court history, Kilo Kilo, V. City of New London, in two thousand five, the government exercises power of eminent domain to quite literally take Suzette Kilo's home. In that case, there was unquestionably a physical taking for the purposes of the Fifth Amendment. However, interestingly, considering its modern importance, the original purpose of the takings clause is actually surprisingly obscure when we go back to look for an original understanding or an original public meaning. Now, most provisions of the Bill of Rights were requested in some form by the states as they were ratifying the Constitution. However, the Takings Clause was not. Representative James Madison added it for as yet unexplained reasons as he sifted through the requested amendments uh, to propose a slate of amendments to become a Bill of Rights. Now, there were a few historical precedents for the clause. Uh, The Northwest Ordinance contained a just compensation requirement, and two different colonial charters and two state constitutions had such a requirement as well. Other states... Sometimes provided just compensation by custom or due process, but there was virtually no recorded discussion about the meaning and scope of the takings clause itself. So, with that background, let's uh, move on to uh, the present case at hand. This is Geraldine Tyler. She is the 94-year-old woman who is spending the twilight of her life in retirement, uh, as most 94-year-old people typically do, except in her case there's really not much typical about it. This is because uh, Tyler has spent the last several years fighting the government from an assisted living facility after falling $2,300 behind on her property taxes. Now, what's important to note here is that no one uh, disputes that she owed a debt. And what her and her attorneys will claim that uh, if the government acted constitutionally when it sought to collect the debt, that would have been one thing, but it was not constitutional when they seized her home sold it, and also kept the profit. And if that sounds like robbery, that's because it is. But it's a robbery that is currently legal in at least 12 states across the country, so long as the government is the one doing the robbing. Now what happened in 2010, uh, Tyler moved out of her Minneapolis condo, which she owned, in response to a series of local incidents that had made her feel unsafe in her home and in that neighborhood. Uh, They included a nearby shooting. Because of this, she relocated to an apartment in a different neighborhood, but she struggled to afford both her rent and the property taxes on her condo. As we said, she ended up accruing about a $2,300 sum in back property taxes. However... The state wanted much more than that. The vast majority of what Tyler ended up owing was not property tax itself. It was an additional $13,000 in penalties, interest, and fees added by the government, which would up her total debt owed to about $15,000. And that is uh, about a 550% increase on the actual property tax debt. Now, she didn't have the $2,300, much less the $15,000. So the state foreclosed on her condo and sold it to satisfy that debt. Now, that is to be expected. However, what Tyler didn't expect was that after the government sold her property for $40,000, the government pocketed the remaining $25,000 instead of putting it back in Tyler's hands. And this despite, obviously, no party at any point claiming she owed anyone anywhere near $40,000. Minneapolis was clearly just taking the position. You'll get get nothing and I can. So what the state took had little to do with the amount of debt itself. And had Tyler's condo been valued at, say, $300,000, it would have been proceeded the same way. The government would have just been quite richer. Now, Tyler is being represented by the Pacific Legal Foundation. This is a public interest law firm representing her. Uh, and uh, a lot of the information I'm getting is from a useful uh, site that they've set up over on uh, their webpage about home equity theft in general and about Geraldine Tyler's case in particular. So I, I just wanted to point that out. I'm just scratching the surface on uh, information about this case and this topic. Uh, so their website will be linked in the video description, uh, and it's definitely worth checking out. Now, if you found yourself wondering how it was just a moment ago that I was so sure that uh, had the house been worth $300,000, and that's what Geraldine's house is sold for, that the government would have been just as fine keeping that money as well, Well, that figure was not a blind stab at a large number for shock value. It's happened. So we're going to move on to a different case, uh, a woman named Tawanda Hall, who lives in Oakland County, Michigan. Now, she, too, accrued a property tax debt. Now, Hall lived in the house with her husband and children. She set up a payment plan with local authorities. But she eventually fell $900 behind schedule. However, the total after penalties, interest, and fees came out to $22,642. Now, not unlike Geraldine Tyler, the government in Michigan then seized Tawanda Hall's home. They sold it to collect the debt and kept the profit. Unlike Tyler, the Hall's home was worth more than $300,000. This means that the state kept the change, which is roughly $286,000. Now, there is something else also that sets Tyler and Hall apart, and that is that they have both been challenging this in the courts, but they have had very different fortunes in front of federal judges. But that may be changing soon, hopefully at least, for victims of home equity theft everywhere uh, now that Tyler received notice just last Friday uh, that she will get the chance to make her case before the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, While it is standard practice for governments to seize properties from owners who fail to pay their taxes, uh, it's important to note that neither Tyler nor Hall have argued against the taking itself. And in fact, uh, a quote from uh, their attorney at the Pacific Legal Foundation said, quote, we agree that the government can seize the property to collect a debt. She goes on to say, what it can't do is take more than is owed. Now, whether or not you could meet such a fate, uh, should you fall behind on your taxes, really depends on where you live. Now, among the states that allow this precise kind of home equity theft, where when the government not only satisfies the debt, but keeps the profit as well, happens in Oregon, Arizona, Colorado, Nebraska, South Dakota, Minnesota, Illinois, Alabama, New Jersey, New York, Massachusetts, and Maine. And that list used to be much longer, but several states have seen the wisdom of abolishing such a just completely unjust law. But the process by which the government steals home equity uh, also uh, looks different in other states that permit it. So uh, unlike, say, Michigan or Minnesota, where Hall and Tyler are, in Nebraska, people are generally shocked when they learn about how the law actually operates there. And according to uh, Jennifer Gogan, who is a... uh, chief of legal strategy at Legal Aid of Nebraska, which has represented clients in very similar situations to Tyler and Hall. In the state, people who fall behind on their property taxes are bought out without their knowledge by private investors, and they receive no correspondence. Now, what happens is that changes after three years go by, when they finally get notice in the mail. And included in that letter is that they have 90 days to satisfy the tax burden as well as the 14% interest and additional fees. Now it should go without saying that that is a nearly impossible task for individuals and families to try to accomplish when we consider that they were already obviously struggling to pay the original debt, much less a multi-year accumulation and associated penalties. And, if they fail to pay within the short period, the county treasurer gives the deed to the private investor who then takes the home, sells it, and pockets the change. And, Nebraska is not the only state with that kind of especially corrupt public-private partnership, which is a distinguishing factor in how states execute home equity theft. So Arizona and Illinois, for example, operate very similarly, allowing investment companies to do the government's dirty work for them. The prize they get is someone else's home equity. And we can contrast that to states like Minnesota, where, uh, which sees the stolen equity deposited back into the government's coffers. Now, uh, attorneys who handle these kinds of cases uh, note that uh, it's usually elderly people. And this is a quote from Jennifer Gauguin from the uh, Legal Aid in Nebraska. She says, quote, it's usually elderly people people who own their homes outright, who don't have a mortgage, and there's usually some kind of intervening situation. It's not just poverty. It's often illness or something else unfortunate that happens in their lives. And then they have no notice given to them that the home is to be taken. So in other words, home equity theft really targets the most vulnerable people simply by the nature of how it naturally functions. If you fall behind on your taxes, then it stands to reason that you are low-income or possibly dealing with some kind of difficult life-altering event, maybe both. Someone unable to pay a tax debt obviously is unable to pay the same debt and the litany of fines and fees as it has accrued over time, and sometimes in such a situation will be essentially even more crippled when their last remaining asset, which is their home, is taken from them. And the profit that they have invested into that home in his equity is kept. If you don't have enough money in the bank to pay your taxes, you certainly won't have enough money in the bank to go buy a new house. Now, at the core of the home equity theft cases, uh, as we've talked about, is the Takings Clause of the Fifth Amendment. And it reads, Nor shall private property be taken for public use, without just compensation. This seems fairly straightforward, although, unfortunately, the way the federal courts have have, have handled it, it has not been. So, Tyler's case arrived before the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit in October of 2021. The question before the judges was, was it constitutional when the government seized the 94-year-old Minnesota woman's condo, which was actually valued at $93,000, and it was sold for about half of that, and at that point, obviously, the state kept every last cent of the $40,000 to satisfy that $15,000 debt. Now, the answer the 8th Circuit arrived at was, well, yeah, they said where state law recognizes no property interest in surplus proceeds from a tax foreclosure sale conducted after adequate notice to the owner, there is no unconstitutional taking. So, in other words, according to the 8th Circuit, Tyler and the many people who have also been in her shoes simply have no recourse when the government profits off of their property. In every other debt collection context, the debt collector is only allowed to take what is owed, plus the cost of collecting the debt. But here, the government gets attacked on penalties, interest, and fees, and then keep all the profit left after that. Now, conversely, uh, from Geraldine Tyler, Tawanda Hall's case uh, was heard before the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth, Sixth Circuit. And she was joined uh, in that case by seven other parties. And when we look at did the judge's rule similarly, not at all. And I really kind of like what the Sixth Circuit had to say here. Their opinion in the case really uh, spared no persons. So the Sixth Circuit found, quote, the Michigan statute is not only self-dealing, It is also an aberration from some 300 years of decisions by English and American courts, which barred precisely the action that Oakland County took here. They go on to say the government may not decline to recognize long-established interest in property as a device to take them. So I guess in one sense you could say that Tawanda Hall was somewhat lucky, although that word feels rather perverse to use here, but the court ruled her suit had been prematurely dismissed and it resuscitated her claim. However, she didn't get that money back. She now still has to go back to the trial court uh, and win her case again to get those six figures in equity that the state is holding on to. Now, getting back to uh, Geraldine Tyler, for the last several years, it has been unclear uh, if Tyler will see an end to her case or if her legal challenge with the bureaucratic hurdles that uh, prolong these disputes for years and years will outlive uh, this 94-year-old widow. Now, the circuit split in the lower court between the 8th and the 6th Circuit has provided a good opportunity for the Supreme Court to hear this case on the merits. So when we look at the case coming before the Supreme Court, uh, in Tyler's uh, cert petition that she filed, she says the case identifies a pressing national problem that has festered for decades in the lower courts and the court should put this controversy to rest. And Tyler is not alone Uh, In her challenge here, uh, her case has attracted the support of a number of advocates uh, with really rather diverse professional affiliations and backgrounds who have filed amicus briefs in support of her. And this includes uh, the National Taxpayers Union Foundation, the Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association, the Wisconsin Realtors Association, the AARP, the AARP Foundation, uh, the Buckeye Institute the Competitive Enterprise Institute, and the Libertarian Cato Institute, among others. There aren't many things these days that unite people in this country, and I think that we're seeing here perhaps this outright government theft might meet that bar. Now, Tyler's attorneys have said, quote, We're not asking for anything unusual here. They say we're asking the government not receive self-dealing preferential treatment that allows them to just take a massive windfall usually at the expense of the most vulnerable people. So Should Tyler win, I believe it would be a fitting metaphor for justice that a 94-year-old woman who had literally everything taken from her and who, in the last big fight of her life, was able to topple the giant of big government. Now, unlike Hall's case, which found favor before the Sixth Circuit, Uh, When her case came before the 8th Circuit, they had ruled against Tyler, concluding that Tyler really had no constitutional property right in her home equity because, the argument came from the court, property rights are ultimately a product of state law and the Minnesota state legislature had abolished the rights in question by passing a statute eliminating them. Now, this analysis is absolutely unconscionable. the fact is property rights are the bedrock of individual liberty. Where strong property rights do not exist, neither does freedom. Equity asset theft also, you may have noticed, bears a striking resemblance to a more well-known issue known as civil asset forfeiture. Now, this is a process in which Law enforcement officers take assets from people who they say are suspected of involvement with crime or illegal activity without having to necessarily charge the owners with any actual wrongdoing. The difference here is unlike criminal forfeiture, the property owner does not need to be convicted or even charged with a crime to have the property seized and to permanently lose their cash, their car their business, or their home. Now, relying on a precedent set in a case known as Phillips v. Washington Legal Foundation, Geraldine Tyler has said in her uh, petition for cert uh, that whether a property interest exists is determined by reference to existing rules, or understandings that stem from an independent source such as a state law. We therefore look to Minnesota law to determine whether Tyler has a property interest in surplus equity, and Tyler goes on to argue that Minnesota recognizes a common law property interest in surplus equity even in this tax forfeiture context. And so relying on this precedent set in uh, Phillips v. Washington, uh, Tyler essentially goes on to argue that uh, in conjunction with another case, an 1884 decision of the Minnesota Supreme Court known as Farnham v. Jones, uh, this case addressed in 1881 Minnesota tax collection, collection statute. And in that case, the court said, we conclude that any common law right to surplus equity, uh, and this is in the 8th Circuit, the 8th Circuit concluded, um, we conclude that any common law right to surplus equity recognized in Farnham has been abrogated by statute. In 1935, the Minnesota legislature augmented its tax forfeiture plan with detailed instructions regarding the distribu- uh, the distribution of all net proceeds from the sale and or rental of any parcel of forfeiture land. They go on to talk about how the statute allocated the entire surplus to various entities, but allowed for no distribution of net proceeds to the former landowner. The necessary implication is that the 1935 statute abrogated any common law rule that gave a former landowner a right to their surplus equity. And the court went on to conclude that current Minnesota tax foreclosure law is similar to this 1935 statute in stripping property owners' right to surplus home equity. Now, when Twanda Hall's case... Came before the Sixth Circuit, they identified the precise fatal flaw in the logic that the Eighth Circuit was relying on in Tyler's case. So, in Hall's case, the Sixth Circuit found that yes, it is true that the federal constitution protects rather than creates property interests, which means that the existence of a property interest for a purpose of whether one was taken is determined by reference to the existing rules or understandings that stem from an independent source such as a state law. But the Takings Clause would be a dead letter if a state could simply exclude from its definition of property any interest that the state wished to take. And to the contrary, rather, a state may not sidestep the Takings Clause by disavowing traditional property interests long recognized under state law. So, the question then is whether Michigan likewise disavowed traditional property interests merely by defining them away in a general property tax act. The interest that the plaintiffs invoke here again is simply an entitlement to the equity in their homes pursuant to principles long articulated by courts of equity. Uh, And this goes back centuries before the merger between courts of equity and courts of law. So this ruling is part of a long-standing debate over the extent to which property rights are protected by the Takings Clause and to what extent they are purely defined by state law. In which case, the state could often avoid taking liability simply by redefining them as it has, or whether they are also defined by some combination of general legal tradition and natural law rights. Now, the Sixth Circuit was absolutely correct to conclude that The broader legal principles constrain the states here. But I would add, at least as a matter of original meaning, that states also must be constrained by a natural law understanding of property rights. And this is especially given the high value the founders place on property rights. It would be very strange to say the least, if these constitutional rights were left entirely to the mercy of state governments to redefine as they please because state law protects them and keeps a key role in defining their scope. Now, one other uh, source I want to point you to here real quick uh, is an article that I will be linking to down in the description called Creation consent, and government power over property rights. Uh, This is a fantastic article by Ilya Soman. He discusses how uh, this same logic would equally justify allowing a state to redefine the scope of many other constitutional rights. For example, the right to speech and to bodily autonomy could similarly be left to the discretion of the states on the theory that state law historically defined the scope of protection against assault and battery, and the extent to which speech could be restricted by laws against libel, slander, sedition, or blasphemy. Personally, I'm actually optimistic that the Supreme Court will overturn the Eighth Circuit ruling and adopt something close to the approach embraced by the Sixth Circuit and a number of other federal and state courts as well, such as the Michigan Supreme Court, which in a 2020 case known as the San Raffaele case, uh, which was decided under the Michigan state constitution, they found the takings clause is a provision that tends to split fairly cleanly, or they didn't find, I found when looking at the case, excuse me, I found that the takings clause is a provision that tends to split pretty cleanly uh, along conservative and liberal lines, uh, and so if uh, this prediction of mine uh, is right—and they almost always are—we uh, can uh, at least, at least expect all six conservative justices in the Supreme Court to find in favor of Miss Geraldine Tyler. However, what's more, I believe the facts of this particular takings clause case will possibly see one or more of the liberal justices also deciding in favor of Tyler. And I think this is especially likely regarding Justice Jackson. Uh, and this is for uh, reasons, actually, that I will be exploring in an upcoming video that I am putting together uh, that looks at why I think conservatives and progressives alike are underestimating the impact that Justice Jackson's tenure will have on the court But that's a topic for another day. So I think for brevity's sake, it's worth noting that uh, as a lower class, elderly black woman on a fixed income, Geraldine Tyler is really the ideal petitioner for a landmark decision in constitutional law dealing with this Fifth Amendment jurisprudence. I believe the egregious nature of home equity theft and the way it tends to victimize the relatively poor and disadvantaged is a point that was driven home very well simply by the facts alone in Tyler's case. And in addition to the takings clause issue, uh, the case also, as I mentioned earlier, raises the question of whether home equity theft violates the excessive fines clause of the Eighth Amendment. Now, this issue is admittedly much tougher to discern in this case than the Takings Clause question, Uh, and this topic may be useful and perhaps even necessary to explore at a later point in time. However, if the court rules, as I believe they will, in favor of Tyler under the Takings Clause, the Eighth Amendment issue may simply not even need to be addressed by the court in Tyler's case. All right, and that is all I got for you guys today. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in here uh, to Legalese. Uh, I will be back very soon with a new episode. Uh, and if you guys could do all those normal stupid things that really help trigger Al Gore's rhythm, uh, you know, hit the like button, uh, leave a comment, subscribe to the channel, all that shit. Um, I, I do really appreciate it, and it does really help the channel. So, yeah, if you liked this video, hit that like button. If you disliked it, hit the dislike button. Uh, And I will be back soon with another episode of Legal Ease. So, until then, I cartago de est. Mercury, motherfucker. Motherfucker. I got a trunk full of amps, motherfucker. I got a trunk full of amps, motherfucker.